0: hello and welcome to bible truth feed we're continuing our series now of a life of jesus and this is a book by melva perkis that we've turned into an audio podcast for you we're now on episode 30 which is called thou art the christ it is good for us to be here and this section reads thou art the christ the son of the living god this confession of peter was the rock upon which the whole of the assembly of called-out ones would be built. Soon, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and two other chosen disciples would experience an unparalleled revelation. They would behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. hope you enjoy this podcast. More will follow. But as always, if you've got any comments or questions or you'd simply like to leave us a message, please do so and we'll do our best to publish them. Thank you very much. God bless.
1: Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis Book 5, Chapter 7, Thou Art the Christ The journey from the shores of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi took Jesus and his disciples through some of the most striking scenery in Palestine. To reach this capital town of Herod Philip, they would travel twenty-five miles due north through the upper Jordan Valley. For the first ten miles the mountains rose steeply on both sides of the river, but gradually the narrow, rocky way ascended until the little band reached the uppermost lake known to us as Lake Hewler there it opened out into a marshy plateau into which poured and mingled the mountain streams from lebanon and hermon well watered and with a southern aspect this was a region of rich wheatland and olive groves climbing higher towards the still distant triple heads of Hermon, the cultivation became more ragged and olives gave way to terraced vineyards and they in turn were left behind as the country became wilder. Now they were among the valleys of great basalt rocks and rushing torrents. Wild roses, honeysuckle and clematis, clung in tangled luxury to hillsides, crowned with the mighty oaks of Bashan. Pausing from time to time, they could look back at the panorama of the Jordan, cleaving its turbulent path through the mountains, until it emptied itself into the distant expanse of the Sea of Galilee. All around, mountains rose to over 4,000 feet, and now to the northeast, Hermon towered over them, its features more discernible. Yet its proud peaks rising 9,000 feet, as remote as ever. Far to the northwest, the heights of the Lebanon Range would just be visible. Caesarea Philippi lay delightfully situated at the head of the steeply rising valley of the Upper Jordan. From an immense cavern above the town sprang the mountain torrents known as the Upper Sources of the Jordan. From the ancient times this had been a place of pagan worship. The Greeks had made it a sanctuary to the god Pan— and only a few years previously Herod Philip had built a great white temple there dedicated to Caesar. He had also enlarged and transformed the town, calling it after Caesar, but adding his own name to distinguish it from the coastal port. We have described this environment at some length because it was the appropriate setting for the momentous happenings which were now to take place. Even the most superficial reading of the Gospels will give the sense of an impending crisis. The turning point in the ministry of Jesus had come with the discourse on the bread of life which had ended his active work among the Galileans. We dare not presume to enter too closely into the thoughts and emotions of Jesus. We must feel something of a restlessness, a desire to get away from the crowds and the highways into the remoteness of the mountains. We see him in prayer so intense that he is oblivious of the presence of his disciples. With feelings of deep reverence, we sense rather than see the struggle and the need of the Redeemer as he waited to take the road that led to Jerusalem. Almost instinctively, we know that it was the Lord Himself who yearned for a sign from heaven, not to point the way, but to give Him the strength to tread it. It is only after prayerful meditation that we write this. It is for each humble disciple to feel for himself something of the sacred and lonely conflict of his Lord, before he went forward with unflinching purpose to his ultimate sacrifice. To enter into that as a deep inner experience is to love him more intensely and serve him with greater zeal. It has been said that whilst the Gospels only record the events of his life, Jesus himself became articulate in the Psalms pouring out the emotions of his own exiled spirit, the psalmist could not know that in his words the infinite sadness and the sublime courage of the Son of God would find expression. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore do I remember thee from the land of Jordan and the Hermans from the hill Mitzah, Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water-spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine adversaries reproach me, while they continually say to me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. The manner in which the crisis affected the twelve is more evident. Things had changed since those happy days in Galilee when all men sought for Jesus. True, when the multitudes had gone and most of the disciples had drifted away, they had risen to a loyal assertion of confidence which must have gladdened their Lord's heart. But such spontaneous assurances are apt to be tried by remorseless events. His continued desertion by the people must have been a severe shock to them. This was quickly followed by further opposition from Jerusalem, which had led to open and unsuccessful conflict. While this had been somewhat neutralized by the tour of the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and the spontaneous enthusiasm of the people of Decapolis, an ominous event had succeeded these experiences. The Pharisees, supported by the Sadducees, had asked him for a sign from heaven. Jesus had refused, and had immediately left them to enjoy their triumph. The twelve had probably seen some complacent smiles among those eminent men as the boat pulled away from the shore. Deserted by the people, successfully challenged by their enemies, resorting to the farthest extremity of the country, here was a sadly changed state of affairs. Nor was this all. It was not without cause that following the general desertion in the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus had turned to his loyal disciples and said, Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. One of the disciples had expected great material blessings from his discipleship, and for him things were going badly. A wonderful opportunity had been inexplicably lost when the people had tried to make his master king. Baffled, he had heard the discourse in the synagogue, and he began to feel a bitter disillusionment. Resentment welled up within him against the Lord, who had called him to a vocation so different from the one his ambition had proposed. The recent sharp exchanges on the western shore of Galilee served only to confirm his fears. Jesus knew of all this. He had given Judas his first warning at Capernaum. He had repeated it at the beginning of this journey into the mountains. Not for nothing did their master warn the twelve of the leaven which was in their very midst. The powerful personality of Judas and his subtle murmurings could do much to offset the influence of Jesus on disciples, bewildered by the sudden change that had overtaken them. In his own time Jesus faced the issue which had brought him into this land of mountains and waterspouts. Luke introduces the crisis in words which must be a precious paradox to all those who love the Lord and seek to follow Him in the path of prayer. In a manner which seems to convey the sense of strain and the urgent need of waiting upon God, Luke records his sublime detachment, and it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? It was an inquiry which was only important because it led forward to the supreme question. They told him that some said he was John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the old prophets. The people among whom he worked had had a great regard for him. There was no doubt that at one time most of them had regarded him as the promised Messiah. But the disciples' answer showed that this failure to fit the people's conception of what action the Messiah should take, added to the steady opposition of the scribes and Pharisees, had changed their opinion of him. He had been relegated to the status of a prophet. But, said Jesus, reaching the supreme crisis, whom do ye say that I am? Without hesitation, Peter cried out, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a moment of great exaltation for Jesus, in spite of all that had happened to discredit the claim of his Lord, Peter knew, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonas. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, Jesus knew in that moment that his church was founded. At the furthest possible point from the temple and ritual of Jerusalem, among the mountain torrents where pagan culture had made its shrine, and the Roman fortress proclaimed the might of temporal power, this rejected leader with his little group of exiles established his church. Peter had justified his Lord's choice of his new name. His confession was the rock upon which the whole assembly of the called-out ones would be built. Although it would be subjected to many assaults, the forces of wickedness and unbelief would not prevail against it. Jesus promised Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and told him that what he will bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There is here a footnote which reads, The binding and loosing was an idiom taken from current Jewish practice. It implied the prohibition and sanction by the scribes of actions as unlawful and lawful under the tradition of the elders. First Peter and then the other apostles were to have that prerogative but they would not be arbitrators of the traditions of men, but of the Lord of God. To return to the text. This was a promise which Peter was later to share with the other apostles, but his inspired pronouncement gave him the right to be first. Thus we find that Peter made the first great revelation of Christianity on the day of Pentecost to Jews, Devout to men out of every nation under heaven.' "'And although Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, "'it was Peter who was sent to open the kingdom of heaven "'to the first group of Gentiles.'" Chapter 8 It is good for us to be here. The true revelation of Jesus as the Messiah was for the apostles alone. The time had not yet come for them to reveal what they had themselves not fully understood. So he charged them to tell no man that Jesus was the Christ. But upon the basis of their confession, he was able to begin immediately to show them the true nature of his Messiahship, where it was destined to lead him, and what it was to mean to them. From this time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. This revelation of a suffering and rejected Messiah was too much for Peter. His love for his lord was too great to accept the terrible picture of imminent persecution and cruel death. Be it far from thee, lord, he burst out, this shall not be unto thee. Ah, Peter, your very love can be a stumbling block to yourself and an offence to your lord. Its stimulus is human and not spiritual. The temptation which Peter suddenly brought to Jesus at this critical moment was greater because of the horror and despair in the disciples' eyes. He could bear the enmity of his enemies better than the love of his friends. Every disciple has to learn that the love of our nearest and dearest may be a greater danger to our spiritual welfare than the opposition of many foes. The test must always lie in the source and the nature of their love, whether it is human or spiritual. Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence unto me. It was not that Peter loved too much, nor that Jesus loved Peter less, but thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In a moment, the sudden temptation had gone. The sword thrust from his impetuous disciple was healed. The road to Jerusalem shone clearly down the valley to the south. With characteristic beauty, Jesus used Peter's laps to show the disciples their part in the purpose of God which lay before him. The cross, which had forced a cry of horror from Peter's lips, was the lot of the disciple too. Whether it became a real one was not important. Their life as men who followed him must be a life of sacrifice, denying the desires of the flesh and savoring only the things that be of God. He had come to give life. Accepting this gift meant losing many of the glittering prizes the world held out. But from the ruins of the temporal loss, there would emerge a life that was of far greater value than the present conquest of all the world. Finally, Jesus put their messianic expectation in its true perspective. They had been right to expect a king who would come in majesty and power to exalt the nation and establish a worldwide kingdom of righteousness and peace. But this cross which had so horrified Peter must come before the crown. Then in the fullness of time the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. From now on Jesus was to maintain that perspective and make it clearer for them in teaching and parable. Meanwhile, to give them an earnest of its fulfillment, and courage to bear their cross and follow him, Jesus promised, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. About six days later, Jesus fulfilled that promise, and three had the unspeakable honor of beholding his glory. We have no record of the events of those days, but we may be certain they were occupied in preparation and prayer. Then the day came for which Jesus seemed to be waiting. The footnote here reads, The Greek words translated, Bringing them up into a high mountain apart, Matthew 17, are unusual. They imply that Jesus deliberately took the three up to share an experience he was expecting. Returning to the text. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and climbed with them towards the top of one of the lower heights of Mount Hermon. There is another footnote. They would not ascend the 9,000 feet peaks of Mount Hermon itself. That is still a task for experienced mountaineers. Mount Tabor is sometimes mentioned as the traditional Mount of Transfiguration. Tabor is fifty miles to the south, and its summit was dominated by fortified buildings. It is also out of keeping with the context of the gospel records. So we continue. The choice of the three most intimate disciples was undoubtedly of supreme importance. They had already been drawn apart to witness the raising of the little girl in the death chamber at Capernaum. They were yet to be nearest him in his hour of deepest sorrow. Now they were about to witness the moments of his final dedicated to the cross and to see the glory and the victory that lay beyond the desolation of suffering. We can picture the little group starting on their way when the midday sun was past, climbing steadily up into the higher passes of the giant massive that towers into the sky until its peaks dominate the whole land of Israel. Reaching the snow-filled crevices they would be able to pause and trace the course of the Jordan as it cut through its mountain walls and tumbled into the broad expanse of the Sea of Galilee. As the evening approached the peaks above them would blush in the dying rays of the sun. The fissures and chasms would become sharply defined while the great bulk of the mountain itself would cast its own shadow out across the eastern plains towards Damascus. Gradually the shadows would lengthen, the sun, now a ball of fire, would slip down to be extinguished in the deep waters of the Mediterranean. Darkness would creep up the Jordan Valley until its vapors stole towards them from the ravines below. That is another footnote. The evidence seemed to indicate that the transfiguration occurred at night. The disciples were heavy with sleep. Also Luke says, On the next day, when they were come down, Luke 9, verse 37. So, continuing with the text, Presently the rising moon would turn the heavens into a luminous depth of light. One by one the stars would begin their night vigil over the slumbering earth. Jesus had brought his three most loved disciples into a high mountain apart to pray. Here, remote from the haunts of Ben, they communed with God. How long they prayed we do not know. The disciples, probably a little apart from their Lord, grew heavy with sleep. They had climbed steadily for hours, and, as often happens, the intensity of their prayer brought a physical reaction. Exhaustion proved too strong for sustained devotion. For Jesus, it was far otherwise. It seems as though he had come in obedience to a call from his Father. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment became white and glistening. The disciples opened their wondering eyes to behold a scene of unearthly radiance. Their Lord was bathed in the light of heaven. Talking with him were two men whom, with the heightened sensitivity of spiritual perception, they immediately recognized as Moses and Elijah. The Son of God, who had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, was in earnest discourse with their greatest representatives— They were talking of the death which Jesus should accomplish at Jerusalem. The vision faded. The two figures had gone. Peter now thoroughly roused from the stupor of sleep, cried out because his impetuous nature demanded expression, but he wist not what to say. All that he knew was that he wanted this wondrous glory perpetuated. Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Peter had yet to learn that only the road to Jerusalem leads to the time when the tabernacle of God will be with men. The peaks of Hermon had glowed but palely in the excess of light. Slowly they were obscured altogether as a cloud descended upon them but it was no ordinary cloud. It must have been luminous with an aura of glory. The disciples trembled with unspeakable dread as it enveloped them. The stillness was broken by a voice from the mists. This is my beloved son. Hear him. How long the disciples lay prostrate we do not know. But a gentle hand touched them, and they heard a dear familiar voice, Arise and be not afraid. They looked up to see Jesus standing over them, Jesus in his rough homespun robe. The cloud had gone, the moon shone coldly on the distant peaks. We cannot read the account of this sacred experience without a sense of gratitude that we may have been allowed a glimpse of that night of destiny. Our reverence and awe should be too deep to allow us to discuss its nature. We have seen what the disciples saw. We dare not seek to know what Jesus saw and heard. With Peter, we wist not what to say, for the brightness of the glory fills our hearts. But we can understand the effect of this night of wonder. For Jesus, surely it was an experience of the joy that was set before him. It was a renewed anointing for his death, to the glory of his Father and the redemption of all mankind the disciples would feel that nothing could ever be the same again. Jesus would later write, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Peter would write, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eye-witnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. But meanwhile John would remember that moment as he looked up at the bowed head covered with blood and sweat. Peter would remember it after he had cried, I never knew him, and would go out into the night and sob as though his heart must break.